Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 438, From the Deep, Part 1. Today it's time to tackle a long-requested topic that I have shied away from in the past for lack of familiarity, but it's one of the areas where Japan tends to get some generally not very positive international attention, and therefore worth taking some time to talk about. Today it's time to talk about the history of whaling in Japan. Now I should say up front, this is going to be a series focused on the evolution of whaling in Japan. We are not really going to unpack the ethics of whaling as an industry or anything along those lines. My goal instead is to explain where whaling as a practice came from in Japan and how it has evolved over the centuries. Personally, I will say that whaling is something I oppose, and have ever since seeing Star Trek IV, the one where they save the whales, as a young boy. Given that adjusted for inflation, it is the fifth highest grossing out of 13 Star Trek movies, I imagine I am not the only one who feels that way. I mention this only to head off objections about subtly trying to interject my views into the history by being upfront about what my views are. As always, you can and should decide what you think. So with that said, let's talk about whales. First, Evidence for whaling as an industry or a regular practice in Japan is pretty scant before the 1500s. That's not to say that people did not consume whale before that time, but generally from the records we have, whale harvesting or hunting seems to have been more opportunistic, going after injured or beached animals rather than actively hunting healthy ones. The first attempts to go beyond this into what we might somewhat controversially call commercial whale hunting, crop up in the 1570s, when sailors from Morozaki, a small fishing town on the Chita Peninsula to the south of Nagoya, began going out into Ise and Mikawa bays to target migrating whale populations. Specifically, these sailors would load into rowboats that could fit about 10 to 13 people each, most of whom were rowers. The rowboats, which were about 35 feet long and 7 feet across, or respectively about 10.5 and 2 meters, would launch from the shore and coordinate their hunt using flags and smoke signals from the coastline. Japan's rocky coast made it easy to find high up areas to put watchtowers, where coastal spotters could direct a wide-ranging hunt. Thus, Japanese whaling teams could be quite large, as many as 40 boats could be coordinated from these coastal watchtowers. Once the whalers spotted a whale, they would chase it, harpoon it several times to slow it down, and then one among the crew's number would leap onto its back and strike a killing blow with a spear. A dangerous and therefore rather prestigious and well-paying job, as you might imagine. The corpse was then lashed between two boats and rowed ashore to be carved up. This was the basic technique of what Dr. Jacobina Arch calls organized whaling, to distinguish it from more solitary or opportunistic forms of earlier whale harvesting, both because of the number of people involved and because these were organized operations, as you can already tell, which were far more consistently successful than earlier whale hunts. We don't have much directly from this first group of organized whalers, only records of gifts of whale meat from them to high-ranking officials or to the imperial court, but we do know that from this starting point, organized whaling spread to four other areas in Japan. First, there's the east coast of the Ki Peninsula just south of Chita, what's now the southern coast of Mie Prefecture and the eastern coast of Wakayama Prefecture. 
Then there's what's now Kochi Prefecture on the southern coast of Shikoku. Third is the area around what's more or less Nagasaki Prefecture in western Kyushu, especially the Iki and Tsushima Islands in the middle of the straits between Japan and Korea, and then finally there's the northern edge of what's now Yamaguchi Prefecture along the Japan Sea coast. There were other centers of whaling, most notably the Boso Peninsula of Chiba Prefecture opposite modern Tokyo, which according to local tales got started when a whaler from another part of Japan washed ashore in the area and taught the locals how to go after whales. However, the Boso Peninsula whalers went after a different species of whale from their counterparts in other parts of Japan, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But first, why a shift towards organized whaling in the 1570s? Well, there are a couple of potential answers. For one, whaling requires a lot of startup investment given all the tools you need to hunt and harvest whales. Specialized boats, harpoons, tools for cutting up a whale carcass. It's the sort of field that requires a baseline level of wealth to even make it a possibility. This would suggest that the economic growth of the late Warring States period, and especially the coming Age of Unification and the Tokugawa Peace, was what made whaling possible by creating an economy with the necessary startup cash floating around, so to speak. For another thing, the end of the Age of Civil War freed up the careers of many a seafarer. We've talked before about how many of these coastal sailing communities took advantage of the chaos of civil war to go into piracy and prey on coastal shipping. Reunification and peace obviously made that line of work substantially more dangerous and far less lucrative. Whaling, which at its core is a rather violent and martial line of work, was a natural enough fit for a bunch of out-of-work salty sea types looking for something else to sustain themselves now that Hideyoshi had said it was no longer kosher to go around raiding ships and whatnot. And once the Tokugawa shoguns banned deepwater ships a few decades later as part of the national policy of isolation, well, there were even more out-of-work sailors looking for something else to get by. For yet one more thing, it's also worth noting that the Tokugawa period in particular was an age of tremendous growth in both population and the economy. Both of these are, of course, hard to measure with statistics given the nature of pre-modern record-keeping. However, we do know that average standards of living improved quite a bit, though also quite unevenly, during the Tokugawa period. The population also grew by quite a bit. The average data I've seen suggests that there were around 16 to 17 million people in Japan in 1600, some estimates quite a bit lower, some quite a bit higher. But by 1750, that number had ballooned to something like 28 or 29 million people, a massive expansion in population by any measure, and especially for a pre-modern society. All these people needed resources to sustain them, and they needed more resources than their ancestors did given a higher standard of living, and that meant exploiting the natural world around them as efficiently as possible. Whaling in this line of thinking was one more way to take advantage of Japan's natural setting to provide food and commercial goods for this expanding population, by taking advantage of the abundance not just of the land, but of the sea as well. To put it simply, a society with a growing population will constantly have people looking for more sources of resources to satisfy that growing population. Whales were, in this line of thinking, one such potential resource. Of course, these are all educated inferences, 
regarding what gets commercial whaling going based on our knowledge of the period, and it is possible that we have just lost records of other forms of organized whaling that predate this time. But hey, that's history, you gotta work with the sources you got. So what do we know about the whale populations these groups were targeting? Here's where we have to take a brief detour into the exciting world of whale biology. Don't worry, it's been about 17 years since I've taken a biology class, so we are going to keep this as painless as possible. Broadly speaking, you can divide whales into two groups. The first are toothed whales, think sperm whales for example, which generally stick to the deeper ocean. Beaked whales, like the ones targeted by the whalers of the Bolso Peninsula, are also a part of this group. The second group are called baleen whales, so named because of their baleen, growths of keratin, which is the same material that composes human fingernails or horse hooves, that grow over their mouths to filter out food, mostly plankton, from seawater. This group includes humpback whales, Earth's most important species if Captain Kirk ever taught me anything, as well as gray whales and, most importantly, the North Pacific right whale. Generally speaking, the whales of this second group were far more important for organized whaling efforts because of their migration patterns. Baleen whales tend to migrate along coastlines following water currents. In the case of Japan, baleen whales would follow the Kuroshio and Tsushima warm water currents. The Kuroshio, the western edge of the North Pacific Gyre, is a warm water current running along the Pacific coast of Japan up to more or less where Tokyo is, before heading east off into the open ocean. The Tsushima Current is a branch current running into the Sea of Japan from the East China Sea. Baleen whales would follow these currents from their southern summer breeding grounds off the coast of China to northern winter feeding grounds, in the process bringing them reliably close to Japan's coastline on an annual basis, usually in the fall to early winter. Particularly in the early Tokugawa period, Japanese whalers focused on the Pacific right whale. They are comparatively slow, generally moving through the water at less than one nautical mile per hour. By comparison, humpback whales swim about twice that fast, and gray whales can go even faster. However, by the late 1600s, something started to happen to these right whales. Their numbers began to decline, and catches became less frequent. The reasons why are complex, and we'll get into them in a bit. For now, I just want to note that they trigger an important shift in how whaling was practiced in Japan, as well as the preferred targets of the whalers. This shift is often credited to one Wada Kakoemon of Taiji in eastern Wakayama Prefecture. Wada was something like whaling royalty. His grandfather, Wada Chube, had helped establish Taiji's whaling community. Chube was connected to the sea lords of the key peninsula, essentially bands of armed seafarers who occasionally made their living as pirates. Wada Chube had helped these men find employment as whalers. He was also connected to the local samurai families and was able to get official support and financing for this new endeavor, something that, as we will see, was quite important for whaling communities. Anyway, his grandson, Kakoemon, expanded the family legacy by developing a new approach to whaling using dedicated net boats equipped with hemp nets. These nets could be strung in front of migrating whales, and then the chase boats would drive the whales into the nets, catching them and slowing them down for the kill and preventing their bodies from sinking into the deep. 
This new approach worked to catch right whales, of course, but unlike the old pure harpooning method, it could also be used to catch humpback and gray whales, previously too fast for Japanese whalers to even keep up with. Kakuemon's net whaling approach was so successful that it rapidly spread from Taiji. By 1684, whalers as far off as Kyushu had adopted it. However, even with this new approach, whaling became progressively riskier as a business throughout the Edo period. In Taiji itself, right whale catches peaked in 1681 and then began to decline steadily for the next century. Local whalers had to constantly move to new hunting grounds and target new species to try and make up the difference. Now, before we move on with the chronological history, there's one important thing to address. What exactly were Japanese whalers even hunting whales for? The answer, it turns out, is pretty different from their counterparts in Europe and America. After the European Middle Ages, whale meat was not really a standard part of anyone's diet in Europe. Instead, American and European whalers generally focused on acquiring whale oil, boiled down from the blubber of whales, as well as baleen, also sometimes called whalebone, which was used for making things like combs or corsets. If you're wondering, whale oil was generally used as a light source for lamps, at least up into the invention of kerosene, as well as a machine lubricant. American whalers, who by the 1800s were the world's most prolific, would generally just extract whale oil from a carcass using a mobile shipboard refining platform, and then dump the body back into the sea. Japanese whalers, by contrast, were much more thorough in their use of whale carcasses. American whalers generally targeted deep-sea whales. Sperm whales, like the titular Moby Dick, were their preferred targets. That's why American whalers would just extract the whale oil and baleen and dump the body. Going into the deep sea to get and drag back a single carcass was not as economically efficient as harvesting several whales and taking their most valuable parts. It's a pretty grim way to think about things, but that was the reality of the situation. By contrast, Japanese whalers were coastal. Therefore, it was relatively easy to bring back the entire body for onshore processing, which allowed for the extraction of whale oil and baleen, of course, but also whale bones, used for carving tools as well as structural elements and buildings in some cases, and whale meat. Now, these onshore whale refineries could be pretty elaborate setups. Work crews of hundreds of people involved in carving up the massive bodies. Indeed, some larger whaling operations were so desperate for labor, they would literally conscript people from nearby villages or beg their local lords for additional manpower during whaling season. Thus, while most Japanese people would never see a whale directly, barring a few exceptional events like a 1798 incident where a stranded whale got lost and ended up swimming up Edo's Shinagawa River, as the city's crowds gawked, most people were familiar with whale products. Indeed, one account of that 1798 whale stranding included the author musing how remarkable it was that the lost whale had not, in his words, quote, already been turned into money, unquote. So how were all these whale parts turned into money? Well, just like in the West, whale oil was used to light lamps and was far and away the most valuable part of the whale. Given the increasingly urbanized nature of Tokugawa society, generated by forcing the samurai to move into the big cities, which then created a bunch of urban jobs catering to samurai needs, 
there was a constant demand for light sources. Urban life, after all, is not quite bound to the same rhythm of daylight that rural agricultural life is. I do want to note, intriguingly, whale oil had one other use. It was a highly effective pesticide, particularly against a type of pest called a plant hopper, which, well, does what it says on the tin. Whale oil could be scattered in the water of a rice paddy. Farmers would then go about knocking the plant hoppers off the plants and into the water, where the oil would trap and drown them. There are other oils you can do this with, including ones derived from vegetables, but whale oil was far more effective at outright killing the offending insects. And it's no wonder. A study done in 2007 on preserved whale oil found that it had a chemical composition remarkably similar to the pesticide DDT. This use of whale oil as a pesticide is, from what historians have been able to tell, wholly unique to Japan. It is not a technique brought over from the Asian mainland. It's not quite clear when this approach was first used. The only detailed origin story we have it comes from Okura Nagatsune, a Tokugawa-era agricultural scholar writing in the 1820s. He ascribed the discovery to a farmer named Yahiro, who lived in an agricultural county called Mikasa in what's now Fukuoka Prefecture in northern Kyushu about 90 years earlier. Supposedly, Yahiro was lighting lamps in 1732 to invoke the power of the gods against plant hoppers and locusts. 1732 was a year of major blight for plant hoppers in Fukuoka, which led to the start of the so-called Kyoho Famine. While lighting the lanterns for divine protection, Yahiro supposedly spilled some of the whale oil and discovered its effects on plant hoppers, which, I suppose, represented a type of answer to his prayers. The accuracy of the Yahiro legend is, of course, a bit suspect given the moralistic nature of the story, which is ultimately about the importance of honoring the gods and Buddhas, and the much later provenance of the tale. But it does somewhat fit the historical record, which suggests that whale oil insecticide was first used in Kyushu and was common enough as a technique by the 1790s that the shogunate ordered whale oil be stockpiled against future insect blights. Beyond whale oil, whale bones were also used as fertilizer, one more way in which whaling contributed to the growth of the agricultural economy, which was the fundamental backbone of the entire Tokugawa economy. Apparently, whale bones were particularly effective as fertilizers for cash crops like sugarcane, indigo, and hemp, making them particularly valuable commodities. They also preserve well, as does whale oil, making them easy to ship around the country using the large coastal merchant fleets that plied the waters around Japan. Whale suji, a word that is often translated as guts but which could actually be produced from intestines, tendons, or skin that was boiled and then dried, could be boiled again to soften it for consumption in soup, or used as bowstring for that most traditional of samurai weapons, the longbow. Its most common use, however, was as part of something called a cotton-beating bow, used in a process called scutching that removes impurities from cotton, seeds, for example. Given cotton's value as a cash crop and the growing demand for clothes and quality fashion among Japan's urban elite, you can imagine that whale suji was quite a valuable commodity as well. Whale baleen, those keratinous plates used to sift food, could be used in a huge variety of products too. Just as in the West it was used to stiffen clothing, 
think of the winged kataginu jackets that were markers of samurai status, but it was also used for decorating sword hilts or making elaborate headdresses, or even making springs. Today, the product from Wales that's best known is probably whale meat, and here's where things get a bit complicated. You see, Tokugawa-era whale consumption as a topic is wrapped up in a much larger and more modern debate about current-day Japan and its whaling practices, which are often defended by pro-whaling interest groups as representing a long-standing tradition of whale consumption in Japan, and therefore deserving of more allowance than Western whaling, which they portray as fundamentally commercial. This argument is wrapped up in a larger notion that Tokugawa-era whaling was somehow in tune with nature, sustainable, and environmentally friendly. The reality is substantially more complicated than what those whaling groups say. In fact, there are plenty of reasons to think that Japanese whaling practices were already running into sustainability issues well before the arrival of Western whalers in large numbers in the Pacific, but that's something which, again, we'll get to in a bit. For now, I do just want to note that yes, whale meat was a part of the Japanese diet, or at least it was in some parts of Japan. You see, whale, like any meat, does not keep particularly well on its own, particularly in an age before refrigeration. Even with preservation techniques like salting, there's a limit on how far it can travel. The records of one of the more successful whaling groups in Japan, the Masutomi Group of Western Kyushu, indicate they were able to ship their salted whale meat as far as Osaka and Kyoto, but generally speaking, whale meat was consumed locally by whalers or given to local merchants who helped bankroll whaling ventures as a repayment of their investment. More on that in a bit. So yes, there were people who ate whale, likely it was a big part of their diet, but that consumption was limited in geographical scope. The idea of consuming whale did have some cultural cachet in the Tokugawa period more broadly, but not because of reasons of sustainability, or because whaling represented some uniquely ineffable aspect of Japanese culture. Instead, interest in whale meat seems to have been driven by Buddhist taboos around meat-eating. It was generally considered more morally problematic to eat what we might classify as terrestrial mammals today. Nowadays, we know whales are mammals based on modern science, but in the Tokugawa era, they were considered a type of fish, and thus less morally problematic to eat, both from a Buddhist perspective, where meat-eating was generally more morally objectionable than fish, and from a Shinto one, where the defilement associated with contact with dead fish was less intense than that associated with dead land mammals. This is actually why, in some places in Japan, it became common to label wild boar meat as yamakujira, or mountain whale, thus remaking boar into a type of fish and lessening the taboos around its consumption. It's not quite clear where this particular tradition got started, but it was clearly established by the 1790s. One account of that 1798 whale stranding in Shinagawa includes a rather interesting tidbit referencing this legend, quote, now, when it heard that the whale had come to Shinagawa, a boar came from the mountains in the surrounding countryside, and other fish chastised the visiting boar. This is the ocean. Why is a beast living in the mountains coming here? They rejected it. The boar was greatly angered, and putting out its arms with the sleeves rolled up ready to fight, said, Hey, I'm not entirely a stranger. 
I am also a mountain whale. Simply put, whale was clearly a foodstuff that was in the popular consciousness. We even have fancy cookbooks talking about how to prepare it, but which existed more as an idea, something associated for most city dwellers with exotic, faraway coastlines than an actual dietary staple. Speaking of the exoticism of whaling, we should also talk about one other aspect of whaling, how it intersects with religion. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's a really complicated topic, but simply put, many whaling groups got into the habit of commemorating the whales they killed through the erection of kuyo, memorials in essence. Many of these groups would also pay for local Buddhist temples to perform funeral rites for the whales, which included giving the whales Buddhist memorial names. Other whaling communities would arrange for festivals by local Shinto shrines to invoke the power of the gods in their hunts. Accounts of whaling communities, meanwhile, often describe the whales in these very human terms, talking about their virtuous parenting of their young and describing their yearly migration as a form of pilgrimage to Japan's major shrines and temples. Local tradition varied quite a bit from place to place, but the appearance of some sort of religious observance around whaling was pretty consistent. Today, this is taken as a sign of special reverence and respect for nature within the Japanese tradition, another argument made consistently by modern whaling groups. However, there are other interpretations. I'll quote here from Dr. Jacobina Arch. Quote, by framing whales as human-like beings that went on pilgrimages, felt concern for their young, and deserved posthumous Buddhist names, people in Tokugawa, Japan, were not necessarily showing a strong respect for living in harmony with nature. While whale graves do show a particular consciousness of the spiritual connection between humans and whales, this connection made whales more like humans rather than giving whales any special kind of insight into a nature distinct from human experience. Memorial towers and other forms of kuyo did not necessarily show signs of respect for other living beings, or at least not respect strong enough to stop people from harvesting whales. Whalers could sponsor such rites to placate angry whale spirits so the whalers could go on to kill more of their brethren, or in order to assuage whalers' guilt and bad karma accrued from killing." Unquote. Dr. Arch goes on to note that A, observances like these are no guarantee of actual moral feeling and can just be performative, and B, much of the language we have associated with these memorials or with religious thinking around whales describes their death as unavoidable tragedy, a bit of suffering for one being to benefit countless humans, while the memorials serve to assuage that suffering and allow whaling to continue. This is, of course, a complicated issue, and we're not going to resolve it fully here, but I do just want to bring up this question of memorializing whales, just to note that there are many ways to interpret what it means to do that, and it's not necessarily the case that this represents some kind of fundamental respect for the life of animals. But frankly, whaling was fundamentally a commercial enterprise, whatever religious rituals surrounded the practice. It was also expensive, in every sense of the term. Whaling could be big money if the groups doing it were successful. We don't have great evidence for exactly how much money these groups brought in, but we do have tax ledgers for one of the most successful whaling groups, the Masutomi Gumi of the Saikai area of western Kyushu. 
Over 142 years of operation, the Masutomi Gumi paid 770,000 gold ryo in taxes to the various domains in which the group operated, plus an additional 240,000 gold ryo in loans to various domain governments, and another 15,000 ryo just outright donated to domain governments, because many domains would demand donations of merchants as a sort of bonus tax assessment during hard times. Converting Rio values into modern currency is very fraught given the complex and not entirely consistent nature of Edo period currency conversions. There have been various attempts to determine the modern value of a single Rio, but they give wildly different answers based on whether you go with assessed rice value or gold content or the gold-silver exchange rate. Personally, I think the best way to think of it is relative prices for the day, and so in her work Musui's story, Teruko Craig suggests that a decent wage was around 400 to 500 copper mon a day as of Edo in the 1830s. Around this time, one ryo was worth about 6,500 mon. So a person earning a decent wage would earn somewhere around 26 or 27 ryo in a year. Susan Hanley backs this up in her article on 19th century Japanese living standards, suggesting a carpenter would pull in 26.5 ryo in an average year, and a farmer about 12. All of this is to say that a total of 1.025 million ryo just in taxes over the course of the Edo period shows an enormously wealthy whaling enterprise. Clearly, whaling groups could make some serious bank under good conditions. But here's the thing, good conditions were hard to come by. With dozens of ships in the water, each with a crew of around 10 people, a large whaling group had hundreds of rowers, harpooners, and netters to pay wages to, not to mention all the labor involved in processing a whale carcass. Those investments could add up to a lot of money. The Osakayagumi, a whaling group based in Harado in northern Kyushu, spent 30% of its operating budget on salaries in the mid-1850s, plus another 23% on daily food rations to feed those workers. And of course, whaling also requires maintaining boats, which is not cheap. Water, it turns out, is not kind to pretty much anything over the long term plus a bunch of specialized tools to kill whales and process their bodies. In simple terms, whaling required enormous amounts of startup capital to even be possible in the first place, far more money than anyone just had lying around. And then, of course, there was always the possibility of a bad whaling season, in which case whalers would have no or minimal income to cover all of those various and sundry expenses. To solve this issue, Japanese whaling companies operated in a manner remarkably reminiscent of a stock company. Shares in the profits from a whale could be bought in advance by local merchants and investors, whose investments were used to purchase the necessary tools and to pay wages. In exchange, the investors would get a certain share of the products taken from the whale's body, with the precise amount and nature of said products determined both by investment and how far away said investors were since, for example, paying back the investment in whale meat would not work great if the investor was too far away for said meat to travel without spoiling. If the whaling catch was so bad that an investor's money could not be paid back in that year, the investment would roll over, so to speak, 
to next year's catch. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, I think this is where it's important to leave the Edo period behind and talk about how this era of whaling history is portrayed in Japan today. Particularly among modern whalers and the interest groups that support them, about which more next week, there's a tendency to defend the history of Japan's whaling practice as sustainable and small-scale, and focused primarily on acquiring whale meat as a part of Japanese cuisine. There is a kernel of truth there. Japanese whaling during the Edo period was smaller scale relative to the whaling done by Western countries, particularly the United States, which dominated the industry for around a century. Whale meat was at least a presence in the Japanese culinary landscape in a way that it was not really in the West, where, again, whales were harvested for oil and baleen by whaling ships before the rest of the corpse was dumped in the sea. Describing Edo period whaling as either sustainable or small-scale, though, doesn't really fit with the historical evidence as we've talked it through. This was not some kind of subsistence lifestyle. Whaling was intimately connected to what was clearly a robust early modern economy. The suggestion that whaling was small-scale does not fit with the volume of investment it attracted as a business, not to mention the sheer variety of uses that Edo period people found for whale parts. As Jacobina Arch notes in her study of the history of whaling, modern whaling groups tend to downplay the use of whale oil as a pesticide, for example, likely because the image draws natural comparisons with European and American whaling for oil to use in lamps and machine lubricants. Ditto for the use of whale bones as fertilizer or baleen as a fashion accessory. These things suggest a more commercialized form of whaling that is generally seen today as morally objectionable, given the depleted numbers of whales and modern bans on the practice. Instead, modern narratives of whaling emphasize the hunting of whales for meat. Subsistence whaling, after all, is still legal, even after today's International Whaling Commission decreed a moratorium on commercial whaling in 1982. A history of Japanese whaling that emphasizes eating whale would seem to support Japan being allowed to continue its whaling practice, something very much desired by modern-day whalers. By comparison, a history that emphasized the commercial use of whaling would draw comparison to the type of whaling that is now banned by the International Whaling Commission and punished by time-traveling Starfleet officers. But the stark reality is that Japanese whaling was definitely commercial, the goal of said commerce was different from the goals that sent European and American whalers to sea, as were the methods, but it's not really possible to justify ignoring the commercial nature of whaling during the Edo period. It is definitely true that European, and especially American whaling, which by the 1800s accounted for the vast majority of whale killings in a given year, was of a much larger scope than Japanese whaling. Indeed, one of the reasons the North Pacific right whales in particular were getting harder and harder for Japanese whalers to catch in the 1800s was that American whalers were devastating their numbers to the point where there are still only a few hundred left in the entire world. But that scope and impact had more to do with American whale boats being able to go into the deep sea to hunt year-round compared to Japanese ones which were restricted by Tokugawa-era prohibitions on deep-sea vessels, and with the technological edge provided by industrialization than with some sort of commitment to sustainability on the part of Japanese whalers. 
It's not possible to know, of course, where Japan's whaling industry would have gone without foreign intervention, either in the form of American whalers devastating the right whale population, or, of course, the eventual arrival of Matthew Perry and ensuing political and social changes. But even in the late 1600s, there were already hints that Japanese whaling was altering the whale population. Right whales were getting harder and harder to catch via traditional methods, requiring the adoption of net whaling and the targeting of new species to keep the business afloat, so to speak. Next week, we'll talk about the shifts in the whaling industry that happened after the Meiji Restoration and how we got to where we are today. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show or our other shows at facingbackward.com or our social media, facebook.com slash facingbackwardpodcasts or at backwardhistory on Twitter. You can support the network at patreon.com slash facingbackward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout-out tier, Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Ayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Pruin, William, Arno, and a house is a perfectly cromulent mascot. You can also find out more about this show in particular at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.